Section 8 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6, edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Zoology, Chapter 5. Insect Social Communities Part 2 Honeybees live together, as we know, in large communities. We are accustomed to think of honeybees as the inhabitants of beehives, but there were bees before there were hives. The bee tree is familiar to many of us. The bees in nature make their home in the hollow of some dead or decaying tree trunk and carry on there all the industries which characterize the busy communities in the hives. A honeybee community comprises three kinds of individuals, namely a fertile female or queen, numerous males or drones, and many infertile females or workers. These three kinds of individuals differ in external appearance sufficiently to be readily recognizable. The workers are smaller than the queens and drones, and the last two differ in the shape of the abdomen, or hind body, the abdomen of the queen being longer and more slender than that of the male or drone. In a single community there is one queen, a few hundred drones, and ten to thirty thousand workers. The number of drones and workers varies at different times of the year, being smallest in winter. Each kind of individual has certain work or business to do for the whole community. The queen lays all the eggs from which newbies are born, that is, she is the mother of the entire community. The drones or males have simply to act as royal consorts. Upon them depends the fertilization of the eggs. The workers undertake all the food getting, the care of the young bees, the comb building, the honey making, all the industries with which we are more or less familiar that are carried on in the hive. And all the work done by the workers is strictly work for the whole community. In no case does the worker bee work for itself alone. It works for itself only insofar as it is a member of the community. How varied and elaborately perfected these industries are may be perceived from a brief account of the life history of a bee community. The interior of the hollow in the bee tree or of the hive is filled with comb, that is, with wax molded into hexagonal cells and supports for these cells. The molding of these thousands of symmetrical cells is accomplished by the workers by means of their specially modified trowel-like mandibles or jaws. The wax itself of which these cells are made comes from the bodies of the workers in the form of small liquid drops which exude from the skin on the underside of the abdomen or hinder body rings. These droplets run together, harden and become flattened, and are removed from the wax plates, as the peculiarly modified parts of the skin which reduce the wax are called, by means of the hind legs, which are furnished with scissor-like contrivances for cutting off the wax. In certain of the cells are stored the pollen and honey, which serve as food for the community. The pollen is gathered by the workers from certain favorite flowers and is carried by them from the flowers to the hive in the pollen baskets, the slightly concave outer surface of one of the segments of the broadened and flattened hind legs. This concave surface is lined on each margin with a row of incurved stiff hairs, which hold the pollen mass securely in place. 
The honey is the nectar of flowers, which has been sucked up by the workers by means of their elaborate lapping and sucking mouthparts, and swallowed into a sort of honey sack or stomach, then brought to the hives and regurgitated into the cells. This nectar is at first too watery to be good honey, so the bees have to evaporate some of this water. Many of the workers gather above the cells containing the nectar and buzz, that is, vibrate their wings violently. This creates currents of air which pass over the exposed nectar and increase the evaporation of the water. The violent buzzing raises the temperature of the bees' bodies, and this warmth given off to the air also helps make evaporation more rapid. In addition to bringing in food, the workers also bring in, when necessary, propolis, or the resinous gum of certain trees, which they use in repairing the hive as closing up cracks and crevices in it. In many of the cells there will be found not pollen or honey, but the eggs or the young bees in larval or pupal condition. The queen moves about through the hive, laying eggs. She deposits only one egg in a cell. In three days the egg hatches, and the young bee appears as a helpless, soft, white, footless grub or larva. It is cared for by certain of the workers that may be called nurses. These nurses do not differ structurally from the other workers, but they have the special duty of caring for the helpless young bees. They do not go out for pollen or honey, but stay in the hive. They are usually the new bees, i.e. the youngest or most recently added workers. After they act as nurses for a week or so, they take their places with the food-gathering workers, and other new bees act as nurses. The nurses feed the young or larval bees at first with a highly nutritious food called bee jelly, which the nurses make in their stomach and regurgitate for the larvae. After the larvae are two or three days old, they are fed with pollen and honey. Finally, a small mass of food is put into the cell, and the cell is capped or covered with wax. Each larva, after eating all its food, in two or three days more changes into a pupa, which lies quiescent without eating for thirteen days, when it changes into a full-grown bee. The new bee breaks open the cap of the cell with its jaws and comes out into the hive, ready to take up its share of the work for the community. In a few cases, however, the life history is different. The nurses will tear down several cells around some single one and enlarge this inner one into a great irregular vase-shaped cell. When the egg hatches, the grub or larva is fed bee jelly as long as it remains a larva, never being given ordinary pollen and honey at all. This larva finally pupates, and there issues from the pupa not a worker or drone bee, but a new queen bee. The egg from which the queen is produced is the same as the other eggs, but the worker nurses, by feeding the larva only the highly nutritious bee jelly, make it certain that the new bee shall become a queen instead of a worker. It is also to be noted that the male bees or drones are hatched from eggs that are not fertilized, the queen having it in her power to lay either fertilized or unfertilized eggs. From the fertilized eggs hatch larvae which develop into queens or workers, depending on the manner of their nourishment. From the unfertilized eggs hatch the males. When several queens appear, there is much excitement in the community. 
Each community has normally a single one, so that when additional queens appear, some rearrangement is necessary. The rearrangement comes about first by fighting among the queens until only one of the new queens is left alive. Then the old or mother queen issues from the hive or tree followed by many of the workers. She and her followers fly away together, finally alighting on some tree branch and massing there in a dense swarm. This is the familiar phenomenon of swarming. The swarm finally finds a new hollow tree, or in the case of the hive bee, the swarm is put into a new hive, where the bees build cells, gather food, produce young, and thus found a new community. This swarming is simply an emigration, which results in the wider distribution and in the increase of the number of the species. It is a peculiar but effective mode of distributing and perpetuating the species. The community, it is important to note, is a persistent or continuous one. The workers do not live long, the spring broods usually not over two or three months, and the fall broods not more than six or eight months. But new ones are hatching while the old ones are dying, and the community as a whole always persists. The queen may live several years, perhaps as many as five. She lays about one million eggs a year. The ants may fairly be regarded as the highest group of invertebrate animals. They excel in the variety and complexity of their instincts and the elaborateness of their social organization, and their abundance and wide distribution marks them as one of the most successful and dominant types produced by evolution. There are no solitary ants. All of them have a highly complex social life, live in large communities composed of males, females, and workers. The workers, sterile females, are the principal part of an ant colony. Only at the mating season do males and females appear in any considerable numbers. The workers are wingless and much smaller than the males and females. The latter are winged only for the mating or swarming season when they leave the nest. After mating, the males die and the females or queens, throwing off their wings, proceed each to found a new colony. Aside from their mating flights, ants are all strictly terrestrial. Their nests are a maze of underground galleries and chambers tunneled out by the workers and serving as a retreat for the adults, a nursery for the young, a granary for stored-up food, and in one group of ants as a vegetable garden as well. The colony consists usually of a queen ant, or in some instances, several queens, whose duties are confined to egg-laying. Of a great number of workers of two or more castes, worker miners, worker majors, and sometimes soldiers, and at certain seasons of the winged males and females ready to issue from the nest, mate, and form new colonies. The duties of the different castes of workers vary. To the youngest and smallest ones are assigned the care of the eggs, and feeding of the larvae. The larger workers forage for food, while the soldiers, large-headed and with powerful jaws, apparently do little besides protecting the nest in case of attack. Ants are primarily carnivorous. They subsist on other insects or upon sweet juices exuding from flowers, leaves, or stems or secreted by insects. They are extremely fond of the honeydew secreted by the plant lice, or aphids, which with many of the common species forms an important part of their food. On every plant infested by aphids, one is pretty certain to see a number of ants in attendance, 
stimulating the excretion of the honeydew by deft stroking. Many are the stories that have been told of the curious relations between ant and aphis, but many of them need to be verified by more careful investigation. Nevertheless, it is certain that the ants do take care of their cows, as Linnaeus called them, in a way that is at least suggestive of domestication. If the various ants attending aphids on one plant are observed, they will be found to be all of one species, and apparently all from one nest. One might assume from this, but probably quite incorrectly, that aphids were considered as personal, or rather municipal, property among the ants. Again, certain ants build a sort of tent of mud or vegetable fiber over parts of branches or stems infested with aphids or scale insects, and this tent serving to protect and shelter both the ants and their cows from rain or from incursions of enemies or other ants may fairly be regarded as a stable. Furthermore, in at least one common species of ant, the workers have been seen to take the newly hatched corn root aphids and carefully place them upon the roots of certain species of knotweed, guard and protect them there until the corn roots were sufficiently advanced, and then to remove the aphids to feed upon the corn. There can be no question that the mere presence of such bold, active, and efficient fighters as the ants must serve to keep away enemies from the slow and helpless aphids. But to what further extent the ants actively protect their charges is not so clear. The most familiar traditional aspect of ant life, the storing up of grain for a winter supply, is illustrated in the harvester or agricultural ants, whose nests are conspicuous in open grassy places and especially in arid or nearly desert regions. They bring into their nest great quantities of grain and grass seeds and have been even credited with deliberate planting for harvest of certain kinds of grass seed, of which they are very fond. This last, however, is discredited by Wheeler. The Isitans, or foraging ants, are fierce predatory insects, well known in West Africa and tropical America. They are nomadic, having no fixed habitations, but travel mostly by night in enormous armies which seek out and destroy every living animal in their path. The approach of these great columns strikes terror and confusion into all the varied life of the tropical forests. Beast, bird, and man hasten to get out of their path. Dwellings are promptly vacated on notice of their appearance, and they swarm through the house, seek out every cranny and crevice, attack and tear to pieces insects, mice, rats, and vermin of every kind, and retire loaded with booty to their nests, which are mere temporary camps excavated between stones or other convenient shelter. They are blind or nearly so, and traveling chiefly by night are guarded by their antennal sense, which, as in most other ants, practically takes the place of sight in higher animals. Travelers in the forest whose camps are in the line of march of an army of driver ants find themselves suddenly covered by swarms of big black insects, biting fiercely at every unprotected spot, and have to run for their lives, abandoning camp baggage and clothing for a time to the mercies of their savage assailants. Their household visitations are regarded as a blessing, for the dwelling is clear of vermin, dead or alive, when they get through with it, and a temporary eviction is a small price for the owners to pay where vermin swarm as they do in the tropics. The salbus, or leaf-cutting ants, are among the most remarkable of all the social insects. They are abundant in tropical America, and species of this group are found as far north as New Jersey. In South and Central America, they build enormous nests, 
with vast ramifications of galleries and passages which extend for many yards and are even said to tunnel under considerable rivers. Their curious habit of cutting out little pieces of leaves and carrying them to their nests was noticed by early explorers and is referred to even in some of the Indian legends. But it was long a mystery what they did with the leaves. Ants generally are dependent for food upon other insects, animal matter, or upon sweet juices which they obtain in various ways. They do not usually eat ordinary vegetation, and while the salvus might be supposed an exception to the rule, there was no evidence that they ate the leaf fragments which they so carefully conveyed to their homes. Professor Bates, who saw their work in the Amazon Valley, was of the opinion that they used the leaves to thatch their galleries and protect them from the heavy tropic rains. The true explanation was suggested in 1874 by Thomas Belt. The leaves are used as manure in which they grow and cultivate a peculiar species of fungus on which they feed. Within the nest, several feet below the ground, they excavate large cavities, often a foot in diameter, which are veritable underground gardens, tended, weeded, and manned by different grades of workers. The little leaf fragments are brought to these cavities, cut, crushed, and manipulated into small round pellets, and planted in the surface of the garden to serve as nutriment for the fungus to grow upon. Under the care of the ants, the fungus is not allowed to produce spores, but only to grow in thread-like filaments, from which clusters of transparent globules bud off, these latter forming the food of the ants. All other kinds of fungus growth are carefully kept down, and the temperature and moisture of the fungus garden is regulated by opening or closing the openings at the top of the nest, which seem to be chiefly ventilation holes, the ants issuing and returning by other openings more or less distant. These insects, observes Wheeler, in the fierce struggle for existence everywhere apparent in the tropics, have developed a complex group of instinctive activities which enables them to draw upon an ever-present, inexhaustible food supply through utilizing the foliage of plants as a substratum for the cultivation of edible fungi. No wonder, therefore, that having emancipated themselves from the precarious diet of other ants, which subsist on insects, the sweet exudations of plants and excrement, the atai have become the dominant invertebrates of tropical America. The nests are guarded by large soldier workers with massive heads and powerful jaws. Smaller workers of several different sizes have assigned to them the various tasks of collecting leaves, of excavating the tunnels and galleries, of cultivating, manuring and weeding the fungus, and of feeding the young, helpless larvae, the nurse girls of the colony being the smallest and youngest of the workers. Upon leaving the nest for the foundation of a new colony, the female carries with her a small pellet of the fungus which is carefully tended and manured until the new colony has become established. The Saba ants are not the only fungus-growing insects. Among the termites, which although not true ants, resemble them in appearance and social habits, there are certain kinds that also cultivate a species of fungus which they use for food. The worker sex, however, is said to feed upon dead wood and to receive no share of the fungus which it spends so much time in cultivating. Among the wood-boring beetles, the ambrosia beetles also cultivate and feed upon certain kinds of fungus, growing it on the walls of the galleries which they excavate. The honey ants, Myrmecocystus, are a unique group. These curious little ants store up honey like the bees, but in a very different way. 
Instead of building cells of wax, they store it up in the bodies of certain of the workers, in which the abdomen becomes enormously distended, so that they are veritable living casks. These individuals do not leave the nests, but are fed by the active workers, and when replete, hang from the roof of enlarged chambers in the runways. In seasons of scarcity, they are able in turn to feed the rest of the community by the same method of regurgitation. They inhabit the arid southwestern United States and were studied and described by Professor McCook from the Garden of the Gods in Colorado. Leading a rather precarious existence in a region where food is abundant only for a short season in the year, the advantage of this habit can readily be seen. And there are certain advantages about living casks and being more readily removed from danger than the fixed storehouses of the bees. A curious development of the social life of ants is seen in the so-called slave-making ants. Two of these, the sanguinary ant, or red slave-maker, Formica sanguinea, and the Amazon ant, Polyergus, are well known and their habits have been carefully studied, the most recent studies and interpretation being by Wheeler. The sanguinary ant makes raids upon the nests of other ants, but in particular upon the smaller brown species, Formica fusca, killing the workers, carrying off eggs and larvae to its own nest. Most of the larvae are used for food, but a part of them are reared and brought up in the nest of their captors. They become loyal members of the new community and take part in the multifarious activities of the nest, going out in search of food, caring for the eggs, feeding the larvae, excavating or extending the nest, and so on. It does not appear that they take part in the raids on other ant nests, but probably this is merely because such raids are conducted by the larger and more powerful workers only in any ant community. The resemblance here to slave-making in the human race is more superficial than real. Worker ants are never captured in these raids, and the larvae reared in the nest of the captors are not an unwilling and inferior race forcibly held in subjection and treated as an inferior caste. The nest is rather to be considered as a mixed community in which the division of labor is based on the capabilities of the individual, but not on his race. Nevertheless, if it is considered that it is only the worker larvae of the smaller species that are reared, and that they help to rear and care for the young of an alien race instead of their own, this slave-making does involve the exploiting of the weaker for the benefit of the more powerful race. In the Amazon ant, a further development of the slave-making instinct appears, which may serve to show where the weak point lies in this method of exploitation. In this species, the workers have become largely dependent upon the captured race, not only for the care of the nest and rearing of the young, but for food as well, so that they are unable to feed or groom themselves. Under these conditions, the continuance of the Amazon ant communities obviously becomes dependent upon the prosperity and abundance of colonies of the smaller species. The slave-making race cannot prosper at the expense of the other beyond a certain limit, and its relations tend to become analogous to those of parasitic animals. In several kinds of ants, the female, instead of depending upon her own progeny to start a new colony, may seek out a small existing colony of her own, or some other species, and persuade or compel the workers to adopt her. This process has been carefully observed by Wheeler and distinguished from the slave-making habits with which it might readily be confused. Both result in mixed communities in which the larger species is more or less dependent upon the smaller in its household and personal activities. But the slave-making results from the carrying off of larvae from raided nests. 
the social parasitism from the adoption by an ant community of a queen of alien race. It is not wholly clear, in spite of the careful observations of Wheeler and others, how the invading queen manages to overcome the strong instinct of antagonism in the workers to an ant of another community or race. But this parasitism is carried in some species so far that the invading race has no workers, only males and females, and is wholly dependent upon its host for sustenance. There is a great variety of parasitism, social and individual, to be seen in ant communities and the careful study of its nature has thrown much light on the nature and limits of the intelligence of these insects. There are several kinds of smaller ants that live in mixed communities with larger forms, but construct separate galleries opening into the larger galleries of their host, but too small for the larger ants to traverse. Among these, some, like the thief ant, Solenopsis, prey upon the larva and pupa of the larger form, while others merely levy toll upon the supplies brought in by the larger workers. Again, there are various insects of other orders, flies, bugs, and spiders, which make their homes in ant nests. Some are harmless or even beneficial in the life of the community, but others are ravenous and destructive, enemies of the ants, preying upon the eggs or larvae, laying their own eggs within the ant larvae to develop at their expense, and in various ways seriously interfering with the prosperity of the nest. Yet the eggs and larvae of these parasites are as carefully tended and reared by the ants as their own. And the adults are evidently tolerated by the workers, either because they are unobserved or because they are regarded as nestmates, or for some other reason still obscure. End of Section 8 Recording by Melanie Young